Josh Alvarez. I'm Amy Madonna. And you're listening to 100, uh, episode 123 of Cinepunks. And I, I, it was easy to remember because it was 123. So, you know. Do you, were you going to have trouble remembering it? I often have trouble remembering many things in my advanced age, Liam. And when you get to be my age, you will too. So that's why you got to take you ginkgo biloba. Some, you, I was going to say, you just need some ginkgo biloba, buddy. You're not yeah, that just, old yet. Just take the ginkgo. Yeah, yeah. I'm old as shit. So wonder how I know I'm old. I applied for a college while mm-hmm. I've been out here in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been accepted at CCP. And then I had to register for classes. But in order to do that as like a first time student or whatever, like returning student after like 20 years, you have to talk to a guidance counselor. And the guidance counselor was like, so do you know how to like do all the computer programs in order to take these like virtual classes? And I said to her verbatim, I said, lady. The last time I was in college, the internet was not a thing. So I've registered for like a computer information systems class for the, for January and anatomy and physiology one because that's one of the ones I didn't have to take when I was in college the first time. <laughs> I'm so, glad yeah. you're taking yeah, yeah, that yeah. computer class. I here's the thing. You say, oh, I'm so old, and that's why I don't know this stuff. But I, I don't know. I feel like there are plenty of old people who are pretty good at the Internet. And um, also that the computers change so much. Like, let, let's let's you know put something out there. My mom and my stepdad can't figure out how apps on their phones work, and they used to build computer networks you know like that's what they did professionally and they're on here being like what do i do with the facebook like what do i need to press you know what i mean so like i think there's a learning curve to everything and to be fair you've learned a lot of stuff on your phone because you've had to use your phone the reality is you haven't had to actively use a computer in so long that you've just like all the stuff that people learn doing it you haven't learned because you haven't done it that's not just because you're old uh, you know, if you were a 42 year old, 43 year old, whatever, working in computers, you'd probably be fine. The same yeah, way that true. as a 70 year old, if you had stopped working in computers in your 60s, after a decade, you'd be like, well, I'm fucking out of the loop. I don't know what's going on. You know, like that's <laughs> yeah. the, the reality is technology moves forward and it and the way the way that we do technology now, which I don't know if this is how it has to be, but this is the mode now. It builds on past knowledge. So. Mm. Jumping in later is hard because there's all this built-in intuitive knowledge that you ha- you know what I mean like if that you don't Im- cultivate. Yeah. Imagine if you were a computer guy before Windows existed, you know, before clickable things existed, and then suddenly you came back in twenty years later. You'd be like, "What the fuck is going on?" Because you're used to doing all these commands and shit. You know, things just keep yeah. moving forward, and it assumes that you understand the same way that like, you know. Anyways, I could go on and on about this, but the the point is, I don't think it's an age thing, and I don't think it's a, a, a intelligence thing. It's just a thing of you've been out of the loop on actual computers. You know how your phone works, which again is above some people who don't use their phones. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, you you're don't... not you're not wrong. You're not wrong. One yeah. of Melani's coworkers like just got a smartphone this year. And she was telling me, she was like, well, I'll call him. I don't know if he's going to answer, but he definitely doesn't text. I'm like, whoa, like that's a different life. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's like friend of the show, Doug Tilly. I was trying to explain to him that, you know, we did that uh, triple feature. We did that triple feature on cast. And he was like, well, it's pretty easy to use. And I'm like, oh, it's easy for you, Doug. But I, you know, the average Cinepunks person is only a little bit more knowledgeable than Josh. So like (laughs) a few of them got confused and he's like, 
he literally said he was literally saying to me, I don't understand how they could get confused. I don't know how you could make this any easier for them. And I'm like, this is the problem. It's all intuitive. So if you're used to doing things, you figure it out. And if you're not used to doing things, you don't figure it out. And people don't know how to help you do it better. And a brief message to Doug Tilly in regards to our cast session. Yeah. Uh, when my computer dropped out, which it does. And I saw Doug saying that it tracks that I'm having computer issues. I see you, dog. I see you. That's all I'm saying. I see you. I hear you. I mean, just the other day, he was like, so can we confirm that when our recording session didn't go well, Josh just didn't actually have his computer plugged in, right? Like, that's really what was going on. I'm like, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what really happened. <laughs> you know what? I, I wish I could be, like, indignant, but I can't. <laughs> I wish I could be like you don't know Doug you don't know what I'm talking about what's happening to my computer Doug but it's like actually yeah that's exactly what it was like the little thingy slipped out a little bit and now it doesn't charge and like oh yeah you gotta push that in uh yeah no I hear you I've I've done it before it just never happened to me while recording so that's the uh. only reason it's never been an emergency but I've definitely been like at at you know plugged in somewhere to do work especially like if i'm out and about like at a coffee shop and you think the thing is in there and if it's not in there all the way then that's what my, my new laptop it has a much more like stuck in their power thing so i love that oh that's nice yeah i'm actually looking to get in one of them johns once i hey, start getting income hey yeah, we no, actually we actually started this episode what are we talking about in this episode besides technology we're talking about it's funny because Criterion has it listed as new Korean cinema, right. which I get it. That is in reference to 20 years ago when K-movies exploded onto the scene. Exploded Now, now here's the, the question, scene. though. You were responsible, right? And you watched the intro by friend of the show, Grady Hendrix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I think he explains it pretty well, which is like they're new in the sense of these are the first movies to come out after the end of censorship in South Korea. And yeah. so I, I think in that way, it's just, but, but it would be confusing for us to name the episode new Korean cinema because your average person who's unfamiliar with the terminology is going to think like, Oh, so these are like movies that just came out. It's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, I think another way to put it is if they had called it the new wave of Korean cinema. Yeah. That would have been, Term, I think. But I think that's not the term that scholars... I think there's already people writing about new Korean cinema as starting in the 90s. And so mm. they're just adopting the term that scholars use. But if you're unfamiliar, which I was kind of unfamiliar till I watched that intro by Grady, by the way. Thanks, Grady. Um, I, I didn't quite understand that, like, no, this is something that there, Korea turned a corner and could actually make movies again. Yeah, it's funny because I actually didn't watch Grady Hendrix's uh, intro. I'm sorry, oh, Grady. buddy. Uh, yeah, you no, I didn't watch it. Only because I was like, yeah, I'm trying to watch these movies. I had limited time, so you know, I had to watch these movies. And uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't see Grady's intro. <laughs> limited time. You're literally on sabbatical with nothing yeah, to do. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I for... I got both movies in while I was watching a three year old and doing all the Cinepunk stuff and doing Rough Cut stuff. Well, you know, you're a lot more capable than I am, Liam. Is that is that what you want to hear? Because well, I'll admit me, it let for me help, everyone let me, to hear. Let me help you out then. And I think this is actually helpful for people to understand what we're talking about here. If you go on Criterion Channel right now, there's a, there is this category called New Korean Cinema. And there's a very helpful introduction video by Grady Hendrix that I think everyone should watch. But I'll give you the uh, quick synopsis of it, which is basically um, there was a brief period 
right after the Korean War where Korean cinema flourished. However, during the late 50s, early 60s, a military dictatorship rose up and there was strict censorship. And there was basically censorship all through the 70s into the 80s. And then in... uh, uh, well, censorship started to end in 79 when that dictator was assassinated by the Koreans' version of the CIA. And so uh, new leaders came in. They were better, but they weren't great. So it still took a while for censorship to start to relax. Uh, and around 89-90, uh, Korea really was at the bottom of the heap when it came to film viewership. Something like 13% of the population watched movies at all. Um, and there was all these rules about how Korean theaters had to feature Korean films. But the films were bad. Uh, a lot because artists hadn't had the funding and the opportunity to make art. So there just wasn't like a, a robust Korean cinema. And finally, not only did they a take the censorship away they made it illegal they it's actually now in the korean constitution that censorship for political reasons is illegal and that caused an explosion of korean cinema that um he really you know there's he gives a few examples but one of the major examples of course is uh park chan wook with his first his, his first movie no his first movie is the one that's on criterion the um oh the um what I forget it what called? it's called. It's like got a lot of words in the title. No, 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 not that one either. The one that's about the demilitarized zone. Oh, uh, um, fuck. And Grady claims, and I wouldn't know because I haven't watched it yet, that that's his best movie. He thinks it's better than the Vengeance trilogy. So he he makes this movie about the demilitarized zone, basically about a murder in the demilitarized zone. And apologies, y'all, that I can't remember the name of it. Um, and it's huge. It's actually a giant blockbuster. It's like the first blockbuster Korean movie in like 50 years. It like makes all the money. So then he follows that up with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, a cruel, cold movie. It'd be like, it, it seriously would be like if Steven Spielberg followed up E.T. with uh, Antichrist. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's it's literally like he makes this giant blockbuster. Still, it's a it's a Park Chan Wook movie, so it has his signature stuff. But he follows it up with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and it's totally alienating. Doesn't make any money. Follows that up with Old Boy, which is while it is fucked up, very cinematic, very Hollywood, very polished. Mm. That makes all the money. Follows that up with Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, which is probably of the Vengeance trilogy the least directly fucked up, but is problematic for Korea because it follows this theme in Korean filmmaking, which is about revenge, right? Mm. Korea is still at war. We don't really talk about that, right? But Korea, South Korea and North Korea have not yet signed anything that they are not at war. And even though things have chilled out now for a long time, they would still have assassins from North Korea caught in South Korea or spies from South Korea caught in North Korea. So like, Mm. This is a living conflict. So then it's not a coincidence that so many Korean movies center around the idea of forgiveness because this isn't just a concept you use when you're thinking about your mother-in-law who drives you crazy. This is your political reality. If this thing ever ends, will we welcome back the North or the South? You know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. And, and, and that's a living question. And so Sympathy for Lady Vengeance and suggesting that maybe forgiveness is possible was fucking controversial because people knew exactly what he was talking about and weren't <laughs> sure that they agreed that it was possible. <laughs> Even though Korea is something like more than a third uh, Christian, uh, the Christian concept of forgiveness is not very popular politically there. <laughs> so, wow. um, yeah. yeah. So anyways, all that to say, getting back to the Grady thing, the Grady thing is just said, 
setting this context of this explosion of Korean cinema, specifically genre cinema, because that was very much censored previously, uh, in the 90s going through the 2000s. And a lot of these uh, directors who made their big splashes in the 90s uh, and, and early 2000s are still the people making movies today. Uh, mm. And so if you go to this Criterion list and some of the directors that we're talking about today, they're still doing stuff now, and not just the directors, but the actors as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, Parasite uh, is like the classic people we've been watching since for like 20, 30 years now. Yeah, so. that's true, man. Yeah, it's so, funny because I still refer to the, the uh, what's his name, Minho... Uh, What's that fellow's name that was in Crying Fist? Oh, yes. The the uh, gentleman who's the fucked up dude in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we should get his Song name. Song Kang right. Ho. Yeah. Well, him and the dude from Parasite are considered like the actors of Korean cinema. And what's funny is they both started in theater you know they were both stage yeah. actors who suddenly got a film career because there was this explosion oh, no. of Choi Min Sik I was right Choi Min Sik that guy right right right, um, right I still refer to him as Odesu just because my first experience with him was old boy and uh he was so good as Odesu that like that's how I see that dude I'm like ah oh, it's Odesu <laughs> you know what I mean like it's been literally 20 but, years and he but he's been in so many things that yeah, he's like he's sort of like so the guy yeah yeah, yeah 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 him, yeah, yeah. him and the uh, the the dude from Parasite whose name I always forget so yeah the guy that, that I just said the other dude Um. oh that's the guy <clears throat> from Parasite yeah his name is yeah Song Sang Kang, Ho. Kang Ho he was also in The Host Oh, and he's like, been in like he was yeah, in Park Chan Wook's first movie. You know, he's oh. and what's what's great about him is he's good at comedy. He's good at serious stuff. He's good at fucked up shit. Like he's been part of this movement from the beginning. Like I said, after we record, you can do the homework and watch that Grady video. <laughs> partly because Grady Hendrix is so sincere, and I love him. He's just one of the most endearing people in the world. So <laughs> if you're listening to this and you haven't done your homework of watching that Grady Hendrix thing, which I did talk about on our Cinepunks. Uh, Instagram uh, I would say go and watch that even before you finish this episode because it's very good uh, but we decided to talk specifically about uh, one movie that I think we were both very familiar with Save the Green Planet uh, yeah. and and Save the Green Planet I, I have to give props to friend of the show Richie Roxass because <laughs> our man Roja here when I first met him we were talking about like questing for music right and he uh, I, th I think we went together. I forget who drove us, though, because neither one of us drove. But we went to Princeton Record Exchange, and he explained that when he was at Princeton Record Exchange, he didn't just quest for music. He quested for movies. And he, while we were there, grabbed a DVD copy of Save the Green Planet, a movie he was really stoked on. And I had never even fucking heard of it before. And he that was my first exposure to this new Korean cinema, was him... Wow big upping this dvd which by the way was a uh a, bootleg uh, like hard it, to find no no, no. DVD, it was the, it like was a, it was an official dvd but it was the wrong region and he was like well this ah. is why you need a region free uh dvd player and i was like i don't even know what that is <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's uh, funny i actually just spoke to richie this morning and i was telling him that this is what we were talking about and he was like I don't think I've ever seen Save the Green Planet. <laughs> he 100% I think has. I could have sworn it was Richie. God, if it wasn't Richie, then my whole life is a lie. I literally was talking to him Richie an hour now. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, hey, Richie, what's up, man? Just like checking in on the boy. And uh, I told him that I was I was cast day. And he was just like, 
talking about, and I told him, oh, yeah, Korean movies. I never saw Save the Green Point. It's like, really? A Richie movie? Because it is, if we're being honest with each other. It's like the kind of movie I'd imagine Richie watching. I wonder wonder if he fucking bought it and never watched it because it wasn't a region appropriate DVD. I swear to God, we were at the the, the Princeton because I didn't even know the Princeton Record Exchange had fucking movies until he had. I swear it was Richie, but if it turns out it was someone else, then I'll feel really bad. But I'll have to ask him after this. Like, I thought we were at the Princeton (laughs) Record Exchange. Uh, You know, now I got to think about who it might have been. Anyways, regardless, that's when I first heard about Korean cinema was Save the Green Planet. So I've been thinking about that for a long time. And then we also chose this movie Crying Fist, which I don't know about you. I had never seen or even heard of before yeah i'd never seen it before either and um yeah some thoughts i have some thoughts oh okay i like i like that you're like no spoilers (laughs) (laughs) all right well let's let's uh let's uh since this is already going long and we haven't even really started yet let's go ahead and really quickly say thanks to all of our patreon supporters we love you we're gonna follow up with you with stuff we say it every time but we really mean it uh big ups to lvac um they've uh really been big supporters of ours and we love them uh and uh of course huge huge thanks to our other sponsor uh essex coffee roasters i love that you're doing this new thing with them with cross keys you have your yeah, own blend, I've been telling which people- by the way i hope andrew was in charge of this blend because you're tasting coffee as shit let me tell you andrew's telling me that he's been going through a bag a week <laughs> what really awesome yeah and the funny thing about it is when people people have hit me up and they're like yo man like how do i get that coffee i'm like yeah just go to essexcoffeeroasters.bigcartel.com and you can order it there and then i'm like you can get the t-shirt and the coffee in a bundle for like 30 dollars, but you could also uh, put cinepunks in at checkout and get 10 percent off of that bundle it's like the perfect nexus of like all of my creative like things. <laughs> it's well, really, really funny. I'll tell you what, and this is you know a fun thing for our listeners to know too. I felt so stupid because months ago, uh, my my partner in crime, Justin Miller, said we should do a drop with a coffee. Uh, you know, company. And I was like, cool, I'll start doing research about coffee companies. And then I talked to friend of the show, Stephen Welch, and me and Stephen came up with a list of people to talk to. And then I put it on the back burner because I got busy. And then we interviewed Aaron, and then Essex came on board with Cinepugs, and then I never thought to ask Aaron about it. And then Justin <laughs> goes, hey, your man's is doing this thing with Essex. Why don't we hit them up and see if they want to do something with us? And I was like, fuck, why didn't I think of that? They were like our <laughs> official sponsor for Cinepugs. And he was like, you're telling me they sponsor Cinepugs and you didn't ask them about Rough Cut? And I was like, no, I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, and I still haven't asked Aaron about it. So I'm still going to ask Aaron to be like, you even, know, can we do a drop? Even funnier, the funnier thing is that the t-shirt design is is by our friend Simon, who did one of the last Cinepunks oh, yeah. <laughs> designs. So it's like all, and the funny thing is too, Simon did the label for the Essex roast that has the cross keys on it, and he put our names on it. So if like Cinepunks gets our own blend, I wonder if my name's going to be on two bags of coffee available from our beautiful sponsors at Essex Coffee Roasters. Head over to Essex, get the cross keys thing, put in Cinepunks, get the 10% off. You want to do it, just do it. It's great. <laughs> okay, let's get, let's keep going. Let's get into it. So 
Uh, do we want to do the kayfabe for whacking on track or what? Yeah, sure. Let's do it, man. So what's it called again? The thing we're about to do? We're, we're supposed to do a thing right here where we say it in unison, but since there's a delay, which I've been learning a lot about given that I'm trying to track vocals on this computer here, <laughs> uh, the thing that we're doing is the thing that we both in unison call <gasps> whacking on, on track. track. Yeah. That felt like it lined up. That felt pretty yeah, good. Yeah, no, that felt good. I mean, like, we have a wizard on the board, so, you know. Jacob, Jacob do man. your thing, dog. Do your thing. It's funny. I was telling Milani how, like, I have a relationship with Jacob wherein I just talk at him, and I don't know what his voice sounds like. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I talk to him online all the time. I don't know what his voice sounds like. We just type at each other. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob, you should send us a recorded message sometime because I have no idea what your voice is like. You should make it a bumper for this episode. That's what you should do. Jacob, if you <laughs> made a commercial for Cinepunks, I was like, hi, I'm Jacob, the editor for Cinepunks. I think you should listen to the show because I put so much hard work into making these idiots sound good. I think that would be a great commercial. Think about it, Jacob. Think about it. <laughs> so, Liam, what have you done recently that is whack or on track? Shit, here I am making fun of you for not being prepared, and then you ask me that question, and I'm like, fuck, what have I done, actually? Because uh, I just wasn't thinking about being prepared for that question. Um, let's see, I, I haven't finished it yet because it's really long, but I started the new Wiseman documentary, City Hall. You know about this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, for people who don't know, is his first name, I think it's Robert Wiseman? Ugh, I should know that. Sorry, guys. Uh, there's a documentary called City Hall. It's by uh, a documentarian named Wiseman, who his documentaries are famous because he has no commentary. You know how, like, when you watch a documentary, there's like talking heads, there's title cards, there's uh, uh, you know, overlaid vocals telling you what to think about this, that, and the other. He doesn't do that. He edits together a bunch of footage to like sort of tell you a story, but without direct commentary. Now. There's still commentary, of course, in the way you anytime you edit anything, there's commentary in how you're editing, how you're presenting the thing, blah, blah, blah. blah. So that's still there. Right. But uh, it's not as obvious as the commentary on something that has a little bit more of a present director. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I will say when it comes to that idea that there's still some sort of commentary there. Uh, City Hall might not be for everyone. It's very good, but I think it plays a little bit into this thing that people have been talking about, and I don't know how familiar you are with this as a phenomenon, but that since Trump, we've really kind of lionized competence. Mm. So one of the things that people sort of uh, lament is how incompetent Trump is. Which is fair, that the whole Trump Mm -hmm. administration is bad at their jobs. And that does create a lot of turmoil, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea that therefore what we need is competence doesn't really make sense if you think that some of the things the government does are bad in and of themselves. Because then you just have competent people doing bad things, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so what this movie does is really show, it's focused on the city of Boston, and it really kind of lionizes the mayor of Boston as being this you know, very capable bureaucrat, you know? Mm. And I don't know enough about Boston to know if that's fair. I don't know if he's great at his job or whatever. It seems like from the movie, he's pretty good at what he does. But the idea that that's what we need right now is just more capable bureaucrats is like not very compelling for me. The the Mm. movie's still very good. I'm not saying the movie's bad. It's four hours long. Four and a half hours long. 
Oh yeah, but I, I love that. I actually think it's great. I haven't. Oh, well, look at me. I haven't finished it yet, but I've gotten pretty far in it. I think it's very. It's very. I wouldn't say entertaining, but it, it wraps you in in a way uh, that is mm. super compelling. Uh, but I do wonder if there's something under the surface where there might be people in Boston who have plenty of reasons why, even though clearly this guy's better than someone like Trump or some other like weird Quanon person. Uh, that still doesn't make him perfect, and I there doesn't seem to be a lot of space in the movie to show his flaws. You know what I mean? Mm. That's not yeah. the point of the movie. It's to show how good a government can be when it's run by competent people who know what they're doing. And, and I don't disagree that when you have that much power and that much of people's lives in your hands, it'd be nice to know that you care about the job you're doing. And that's one of the things with Trump, right? Like people say like, well, mm. he hasn't even gotten all of his stuff passed. That's true. But in, but in neglect, he's been able to hurt as many people as he would as he if he was able can. to yeah. execute on his ideas. So I, I'm not saying that neglect is good either, but I am saying that focusing too much on competence when the other issue here is actually like justice you know, mm. uh, is is not perfect. So I, I don't want to criticize it too hard because I feel like the number of people listening to this who are willing to watch a four-hour documentary is probably slight. So if, <laughs> if, if you're someone who is willing to watch it, you should watch it. But, mm. uh, but I do want to just lift that up as like one of the criticisms that occurred to me watching it was like, I'd, I'd love to hear from someone who has criticisms of the government there as opposed to something that mm. was only focused on the positive. Um, I also saw the new... Uh, Miranda July movie, Kajillionaire. Oh, have you watched Kajillionaire. No, I have not, but I've been excited oh, about it. How is it, it? It's so good. It's, it's, yeah. I think it's perfect. I think it's a perfect movie. I love it top to bottom. It made me weep like a little baby. I loved it. I thought it was great. I love Miranda July already, but mm. uh, I think this might be my fa- my new favorite of her films. I think it's really good. I highly recommend people check it out. If you know who Miranda July is, my guess is you'll probably like this, unless you hate her movies. I, I think if you're mm. someone who hates her other movies, I don't know that you'll like this, but yeah, as a fan, this was, I think, her the best thing she's ever done. Wow. Um, I do love her movies so much. Yeah, me too. I'm a, I'm a big fan. And then uh, yeah. I like her music too. Is that right? Yeah. I don't think I've really checked out her music. That's funny. Yeah, it's it's quite good. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like that era pop of like the indie variety. Right. You know, I think it's really, really good. Oh, I watched. I don't think I talked about it on here. Did I talk about Streetwise? No. It's a documentary from the The documentary from, yeah, about the street people, the the children, right? In Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very good. It's very heartbreaking, you know? It's, like, not Mm. an easy watch, but it's very, very good. Man, I watched a lot of documentaries recently because I also watched uh, Totally Under Control, which Mm. is fine. I think, uh, you know, friend of the show, Ed Travis, was like, it just felt like the news. I think it's more insightful than that. I think there is stuff to learn from watching it, and I think it's made pretty well. But mm. if you're someone who's kept up with what's going on with uh, uh, COVID, then it, mm. I don't know that it's totally going to, like, rock your world. I just think it's, it is pretty impressive they were able to get it made when they did you know and mm. under the scrutiny that they were under they still got it done so that's all impressive and worth worthwhile but i don't think it's like a huge revelation like if anyone's paying attention they kind of should know that mm. trump knew all this shit and just didn't care so whatever anyways totally right. under control and then i watched the documentary um the donut king 
Have oh, yeah. This? How is that? No, oh, I haven't seen it. It's great. I mean, again, uh, let's get the slight criticism out of the way. This is a rah-rah America movie, so if you're someone who hates shit like that, you're not going to vibe with it. But uh, but once you get past that, it's also the story of like, it's an up and a down thing. Like, on one hand, this dude was amazing. He really took his experience as a refugee and not only turned his life around, but turned hundreds and hundreds of people from Cambodia's lives around when they were able to escape and come to this country. He really helped them out, right? And then it's also a tragedy because at a certain point, his gambling addiction got so bad that he started to like steal from the very people whose lives he had changed, you know, because he needed to feed his gambling addiction. So the movie does both those things. And, and, you know, uh, it's okay that it's a rah-rah America movie because this is one of the times when, you know, America did something good. We let in a bunch of refugee folks. They got opportunities selling donuts. And for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part, their lives were made better. And now they're like happy people, right? Now, Mm. granted, if you're someone who hates capitalism, it does get a little old how they're like, Yep, and thanks to capitalism, now we live a perfect life. And I'm like, ah, I don't know about all that, guys. But I get it. Like, if you can get past that, the humanity of it is really good. It's really funny, you know? And I love mm-hmm. when a documentary can tell a true story and be really funny, you know? That's good, um, yeah. And it's very heartwarming. Like, as much as I am, like, I don't know that donuts will save the world's problems, it's certainly in this situation he was able to help a lot of people and there's no way around that no matter how cynical you are these people were really helped and and they able were able to make something cool of it and now a lot of these places have closed just because of changing neighborhoods and whatever but um a lot of places uh featured in the film have been able to reinvent themselves with a new generation trying new stuff with donuts making weird artsy donuts really like Mm. building themselves up on social media and stuff so like it's cool to see the next generation kind of step in and try to like innovate in these classic shops and stuff so i love all that and there's sort of inside of there a story of how dunkin donuts got their ass kicked in the 80s by these guys and i kind of love that (laughs) part too that dunkin donuts got embarrassed out of california i think that's pretty cool so uh yeah donut king check it out uh that's about it i've watched a few other things but they're all for podcasts so all i'll say Mm -hmm. is check out upcoming cinema smorgasbords and uh horror businesses and you'll hear about some of the other things i've watched Mm. there you go how about you joshua um let's see on track i had a really lot of fun doing the um action smorgasbord with everybody oh yeah i should have said that was on track as well that was a time i'd never seen dreadnought before it's so fucking good oh my sweet baby jesus what was that yeah it was amazing it was quite fun i really enjoyed the format i thought it was really cool i thought it was i mean it's like talking during a movie kind of but it's also kind of not you know um it was, uh, I enjoyed myself. Me and Melani had so much fun just watching w- along with everybody. So thank you to everybody that signed on and watched with us. Thanks to Doug for being awesome. And Liam, of course, for being the glue that holds it all together. And um, that was one of the, like, one of the more fun things I've managed to, to do recently. Um, also on track, I managed to see a copy of Mank, the new David Fincher movie. Oh, and you starring- liked it? Because I've heard nothing but bad things. It's a weird movie because it's like it's basically like Hail Caesar um, without the humor of a Coen Brothers. Sure. So, I mean, I didn't hate it. I didn't think it was I didn't I didn't think it was bad. 
thought Gary Oldman's really, really good in it. Um, I definitely enjoyed, like, they put the cigarette burns, like, in real transfers on it, and, like, it's shot in black and white. Um, I thought it was okay. I mean, like, it's it's interesting because about the strife between Orson Welles and Harry Mankiewicz, like, just because Citizen Kane is such, like, a monolith of a movie, right? Like, you see in Citizen Kane, and, like, that's an important movie, so you're going to read about it. And, like, I heard about all the things, and, like, they end it with the sound clip of um, Orson Welles, like, kind of shit-talking Mankiewicz at the Oscar, well, when he received the Oscar eventually and all that stuff. And um, it's interesting to see that backstory played out, especially with players like William Randolph Hearst and all that stuff. Like, it was, I thought it was, um, I thought it was good. Like Gary Oldman a lot. That's really it. so. What? Do you, how do you think? The thing I've heard the most is that the people I know who are like cinema people mm-hmm. say it looks like shit. They think it looks bad visually speaking. I didn't. I mean, it's shot in black and white. Um, I read that there were um, dickages for uh, Amanda Seyfried and for um, Gary Oldman and for uh, uh, one one more of the actors in the movie. Um, and so it has that hard nosed style that was very prevalent in the movies from that time, like this fast talking cigarette smoking, like almost Americana in terms of like cinema lore, you know what I mean? Like it's got that like, like that kind of like talk to it. So, um, it's, it's a dialogue driven movie, which is not to say that the visual wasn't bad. I mean, it seemed dark. But like, I think that was by design. And um, yeah, that's all I've heard from people who've seen it is negative stuff. You're the first thing I've heard, so now I kind of want to check it out because I'm like, well, if Josh liked it, then maybe I'll like it. I kind of want to. I mean, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. I mean, again, I'm interested in that era of film, and I like hearing about like this kind of stuff. So it was like right up my alley. So you know, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty cool. Hmm, I'm definitely going to check it out. It's worth mentioning because it's become a bit of a meme online is the whole like, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this comes from this one essay and blah, blah, blah. So I think there's a bit of a conflict over how historical the movie is. Or how accurate it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, then again, I think that's already become a joke. Like you shouldn't really care, right? Like the movie's the Mm. movie. If it's not that accurate, I don't think it's a big deal. But um, yeah, no, it's I mean, I don't know how accurate it is. But again, it's just interesting seeing like, you know, somebody playing William Randolph Hearst and like seeing like Orson Welles and like his his like enigmatic and cantankerous glory. You know what I mean? Like it's it's one of those things that's like if you already have a romantic notion of this era of thing, it's that made actualized. Hmm. That's interesting. Which I 100% do. So, you know, and that's because you know, I've grown up with movies like Singing in the Rain. So, like, it's that era just before, like, things got colored and, like, full, like, color film was put out. Like, it's that, you know, there's a romance to that era for me. So it was an indulgence in that. Um, I also saw the movie Run, starring Sarah Paulson. Watched it as well. What would you think? It's okay. I, uh, yeah, that's I, right. I came away thinking, like, yeah, it's fine. I think like, uh, I think some people really hated it, and I don't get that. I think it's pretty amusing, but I mm. do think it's like 
it, it has the potential to really go over the top and it doesn't really do that i think it just could have been i think it would have been better if it was actually like more trashy like if it really mm. went full like if exploitation full, something. like don't breathe like turkey baster like that oh uh, that was a little too much for me i i, I yeah think, i did not I think, like that at all no 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 i think that movie's gross but i think that um it just it it I feel like it's playing a little bit off the the surprise of it all. And for mm. me, I didn't find it surprising. Like, I kind of knew yeah. everything from drop that was going on. So mm. I wanted it to lean more into, like, completely over-the-top performances and crazy stuff. A lot of people really hate the end, too. And by the end, I don't mean the climax. I mean the stinger. A mm-hmm. lot of people hate the stinger. And I'm not sure that I do. I think maybe... The stinger, more of that sort of trashiness of the stinger would have been mm-hmm. good in my mind. To have that level yeah. of just like fuck everything would I think would have made the whole movie better. Yeah. Okay. I got the same same feeling too. Also, my concept of when you play it back, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't at all like add up if you do it backwards. If you do the deconstruction of the movie of like what the whole hook is, it doesn't work. You think so? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah, it doesn't. Huh. That is I my concept. I haven't so, really, I haven't really thought about it that much. And then another movie that I watched that was I would put as on track is David Byrne's American Utopia. That you, thing is goddamn majestic. Yeah, I really want to see it. Uh, we could go ahead and say we're planning now on a burn triple feature to cover for the podcast. Yeah, only because I don't like the Talking Heads, but I watched this movie. And it, the songs are so good. And I went back immediately. I'm like, wait, do I like the Talking Heads? And no, I don't like the records. But seeing it presented in the way that it's presented in this movie, directed by Spike Lee, it's awesome. And I've been to that theater because that was where I saw Sea Life A Wall, or Sea Wall A Life, I think it was called. And um, it's a cool theater in New York. And um, seeing th- that stage, which is massive, in the manner that they used just gorgeous it's wonderful the movie is so cool i think it's really really good so um i put that also today anoni dropped a two song single which i didn't get to a chance to listen to the second song on there which is rnc 2020 i think it's called but um the lead off track on the single is his cover of donna summer's um seminal hit survive and if you don't think that Anoni singing I Will Survive in Anoni Manor is fascinating to me, then you have no concept of what I've been listening to lately because that shit is unbelievable. I think it's really, really good. Um, another record that came out uh, recently is Nick Cave's Idiot Prayer. Did I talk about that yet? Yeah, we talked about that the last episode. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's been out. Um, I'm trying to remember. There are a couple other... Oh, um, there's a band from Portland called Soft Kill, of which I know nothing about. I only know that Holy Mountain did a lot of shirts for them. (laughs) And uh, I never... I thought it was a t-shirt brand. I didn't know that it was a band. But um, they put out a record called Dead Kids R.I.P. City, and it is phenomenal. I think it's really, really listenable. me black english it's got that like uh weird exoneration of british subculture via a west coast city so um it has like uh it's like a synthy 
I don't know. Just listen to it. It's on all. It's available on all streaming platforms, and I think it's really, really good. So I've been listening to that a lot. So that's what I got. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break. So we'll be right back. We're going to talk about first 2003's Save, Save the, the Green, Green Planet. Planet, and we'll then we're going to talk about 2005's Crying Fist after the break. to me about your history not only with new korean cinema but with like asian cinema in general like where did new korean cinema like come into your life at what point did it hit you in terms of your viewership of like movies from asia Hmm, that's interesting i would say that um well, like I said, I feel like my first introduction specifically to Korean stuff was Save the Green Planet. Um, mm. But even then, I hadn't seen it right away. Like, it took me a while to see it. I just knew it existed. Uh, mm. and, but I think the first thing I got really excited about was one year at the Philadelphia Film Fest, they had Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. And that was actually mm. the first film I saw in the Vengeance trilogy. Really? You started with Lady Vengeance? Yeah, because it played at the Film Fest, and then I caught up with the other ones later. And so that was sort of my introduction. Uh, Although, and we've talked about this, I think, before, right? Because didn't we cover, or no, I covered on Horror Business, A Tale of Two Sisters. Yeah. So I, I was thinking of that as separate. Somehow... And, and this is not fair because it's all Korean, right? But for whatever mm. reason, the horror films that followed in the wake of J-horror. So it felt mm. like there was, a, there was an interest in Asian horror after The Ring and Ju-on mm. broke through. And yeah. then Korean films like, uh, like A Tale of Two Sisters followed behind that. And so I associated those Korean films with these other horror movies. Whereas the films of let's say Park Chan-wook or, you know, these other sorts of more, I don't know how you would describe them, but I guess, you know, what Grady said is like these, these films that combine genre tropes with big Hollywood stuff and the tradition of Korean melodrama. I kind of saw them as separate. You know, I I wouldn't have associated a tale of two sisters with sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, but like Mm. these are all coming out of the same country and the same system and probably the same funders really, even if the directors are very different. So, um, I I I uh, I kind of like saw them as different parts, and in fact, 
uh, when I was going to, we talked about this before, there was a point with the Philadelphia Film Fest where I had seen so many great Korean films that I would go mm. to anything that was Korean. But I tended to prefer <clears throat> stuff that was more action or um, exploitation or something like that to horror mm. because I felt like um, later versions of Korean horror I was less impressed by than with the first sort of wave that 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 was uh that came to america and of course Mm. this is part of the problem with being americans uh looking for asian cinema before the internet was as useful as it is now because Mm. a lot of this stuff probably came out at the same time but it didn't come here at the same time you know what i mean so Mm. like like something might have been contemporary for you if you were in south korea but for me it's separated by years because it was when was it made available when was it added to the netflix dvd thing because i got yeah uh, I got so many movies from the Netflix DVD service. You know what I mean? Mm, or yeah. when did it play at the Philadelphia Film Fest? Or where did it? When did it play at Fantastic Fest? You know what I mean? So, mm. um, you know, there was really a feeling for me of Korean film sort of became outside of uh, outside of Mike, who I kept up with. Right? Mm. I eventually became more interested in Korean stuff than I did in Japanese stuff because it felt mm. like. I was just having a better record with Korean stuff. And now, partly because of an episode we never really did with Scott Cole, right? We were going to do Tokyo Gore Police, and I think we ended up not doing it. But I only went to those movies. I think there's a genre name for it that I forget what it is, but all those super gore movies from Japan. Yeah, those like Tokyo, um, what are they called? Like sushi... uh... Yeah. Oh, what's the name of the company? Like Tokyo Sushi, like, Sushi Typhoon, but Sushi Typhoon does a lot of different. Yeah, yeah films, but, but it's all those movies. All like those Tokyo movies are Gore on Police, Sushi Typhoon. Yeah yeah, 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 or Battle Robogeisha. Ba- yeah, yeah, Robogeisha is one, or uh, Battle Yakuza, or all that stuff. Yeah. The, the point is, I was avoiding all those movies, and so Korea, it felt like I was getting the same sort of extremity and willingness to play with genre without mm. going full slapstick, and that's yeah. what didn't appeal to me from a distance the Japanese. of those Japanese movies. Now, yeah. to be fair, we never did the episode, so spoiler alert for an episode we might never do, I fucking love Tokyo Gore Police now, but I only watched it because Scott asked us to watch it and having yeah. watched it i realized that like everything that there are examples of those movies that are bad like i don't like zombie ass you know mm. but tokyo gore police is a beautiful film as much as it is a stupid film and that's actually why it's so good you know what i mean mm. in the yeah. same way that if you aren't expecting it and i see this a lot on letterboxd i went and read people's reviews of the movies we're covering today as well as some other of these korean cinema films and i was never surprised to see american critics complaining about the tonal shifts which is of mm. course the thing that makes these films from this school yeah well that's what makes them korean right is that they're marrying their influences in a country that has a history of powerful melodrama they're bringing in genre influences and mixing it with their traditional melodramas to get at the same sort of human emotion in new Mm. ways i fucking love that that's what makes them magical that's what their innovation is it'd be like it'd be like watching the like uh you know the sort of a new horror of the 60s you know like the romeros Mm. and the carpenters and whatever and being like well why are these movies so stark 
Well, that's the fucking yeah. point. You know, you're complaining about the innovation yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Why do all these punk songs have breakdowns in them? Well, because it's hardcore, <laughs> buddy. Like, that's what it is. Like, you're complaining <laughs> about the thing. So, uh, you know, uh, it's fine. Like, I get it. If someone doesn't like those tonal shifts and they don't feel like they're revelatory in any way. But for me, these movies tell a better story because of those. Uh, what, what is your relationship yeah. to these? I, we, we've talked a lot on this show about uh, how we discovered various kinds of Asian cinema. But what's your mm-hmm. specific experience with these Korean movies? Well, as you know, my history with Asian cinema started with like Stephen Chow movies and like, oh, you know, yeah, sure, sure. Juan, like all like that. Like the, basically the entire buffet of Asian cinema was kind of open to me um, were you around D- the same time. Were you a DVD deals person? Uh, I was a DVD deals person. That's how I managed to get movies like Shinobi and like uh, yep. Versus. That's where I bought Versus. Versus, versus Hero. would probably be. I bought Versus be, oh, and Hero, Hero at yeah. the same time at a DVD deals. Oh my God, Hero and Versus is so good. And it's like, those were like the intro for Asian cinema for me because like I happened to just be around right when, like, yeah, in like New York City, like North Jersey, that era, like 99 era, right? That's when like the Asian cinema stuff started happening for me in terms of just me being open to it. Sure. Because um, at the time, one of my homeboys worked at Anime Crash in New York City, and they got, in addition to all the anime that they had there, they got a bunch of just wild-ass movies, movies like Wild Zero, that I had no idea about. And I was like, I have no idea what any of this stuff is. Let's watch it. And since it was free for me, I just watched as much as I could. And um, eventually what ended up happening was... um, I went to the Angelica Theater in New York City, and the first and only movie to see there was Save the Green Planet. And I went by myself, and I was like, "This shit is fucking crazy pants!" Like it was, it was truly nuts. And uh, well, yeah, that was like, I don't think that was in two thousand three though. It might have been. Did is two thousand three just the domestic release? Because I feel like I saw it before that. I don't know. I have no idea. I feel like I saw it before that because I ended up at that movie theater watching this movie and I had no, it was one of those things where I walked in just because I was moping around New York City, had nothing to do and was sad. (laughs) I was like, oh, a movie's about to start. Let's go. And it was this. So imagine like sad, lonely Josh in New York City by himself in like his early 20s, just kind of wandering around full of dojos like um, the soy burger dinner that they used to give with like the ginger salad and all that stuff. And like, that's all I had enough money for <laughs> at the time. So I had that and I was just like, this sucks. I hate life. Oh, look, a movie's playing. And I went in and this is the movie that I saw. And that was like, wait a minute, what is Korean horror movies? What is Korean movies? And at point, I moved to Philadelphia and I was, I started working at TLA video and that was where I started learning more about Korean movies in general. And that's how I saw like, you know, old boy and some thief from the vengeance trilogy. But, um, also I still like, so that was around the same time that, um, I started watching movies by, um, Kim Ji-woon or Ji-woon Kim, the guy who directed, um, he recently directed, well, he directed Tale of Two Sisters. He directed I Saw the Devil, but I started with a movie called A Bittersweet Life. Do you know this movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've never seen it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, it's one of my most favorite movies. And like, that's right. Like, as far as like the K-horror stuff goes, like, I never really like gotten into it as much as I got into like, until Tale of Two Sisters, like 
definitely was feeling more of like the memories of murder, like those kinds of movies. And then I started watching, I think Tale of Two Sisters might've been like the intro into like the actual proper horror, whatever, whatever. And then that was like my intro to K-horror, which then brought me to all other places. But I've also always really liked like the good, the bad and the weird, you know, also by the guy who directed Bittersweet Life, like all that stuff. And lifelong addict like now that's like my jam and i love korean movies like that and i still keep up with like other japanese and chinese stuff too but um the the korean movies of this time in particular have always resonated with me in exactly what you're talking about like these push and pull of different furies that all congeal into one compelling narrative throughout um the entire oeuvre of like korean movies that i've seen and uh I really do appreciate that. I, and I, I've never, it's never been like, even with the success of movies like Parasite and also like movies like Snowpiercer and all that other stuff, like it's cool and I appreciate it. But it's also like you think about movies like The Host and you think about like how like that's completely mired in Korean culture and history, but as well as like the current state of Korean society. This, this shit is compelling and I find it to be completely intoxicating and I really like the visual style for most of it you know what I mean like there isn't any movies that I've seen that I'm like ah doesn't really look cool to me even watching Save the Green Planet now which uh, let me can I tell you a really funny story about this movie sure <laughs> so this is one of those movies that I don't know if long time will know that there was a shop at 8th and Chestnut in Philadelphia that for some reason, like I went there looking for like other movies like Kung Fu Hustle, movies like Shaolin Soccer. And dude was like, yo, have you ever heard of these Korean movies? It's the next big thing. And I was like, no, hit me up. And he like gave me like tons, well, it sold me tons of movies that I'd never heard of except for Save the Green Planet. That was like where I found it on DVD. And at the time, I was in Belagost with all those dudes and like those guys all like movies as well and we used to have these movie viewing parties on the roof of one of their houses in West Philly where we'd all kind of hang out on the roof and watch movies that people had and um, that day I brought Save the Green Planet and um, and three the what's the the three shorts one that has cuts on it oh um, yeah three three extremities Three extremes, yeah, that's it. And uh, we watched, we watched Save the Green Planet, and it was one of those like nights when I was like, I did this for you, I brought you this movie because everyone was like way stoked at the end, and we were eating like vegan snacks and stuff on a roof in West Philly watching this movie. That I'm like, yo, I brought this shit, and everybody loved it, and it was like one of those moments. <laughs> so stupid. You're anyway. so funny. Yeah, that's it. That's my story. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> It's such like uh, this movie in particular to me is like a cornerstone of my understanding of Korean cinema, and I love it still to this day. And things that I thought were hokey back then, I watched it recently, like yesterday, and it's like, wait a minute, this shit still looks way better than I remember it, and it still slaps just as hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that it, this definitely has a look to it. I think um, Crying Fist, which we'll get to next, is a little bit more of that time alienating digital video sort of look but yeah um i still think both movies hold up they're they don't look you know I, I think in retrospect they don't look quite how i want them to but i don't think either one is bad and i think 
compared to Crying Fist, Save the Green Planet looks pretty good, you know, and yeah, that yeah, yeah, even yeah. some of the special effects that are a little hokey aren't that bad, and a lot of it is pretty effective stuff top to mm. bottom. So, you know, I, I, I think it really works. I think uh, it's worth sort of actually talking about the movie is about. So a couple, uh, the dude of which clearly is suffering from some sort of mental illness, uh, mm-hmm. kidnaps a local official and is convinced that he's an alien. And this whole story sort of plays out. That's like a combo of like uh, kind of a police story and that because they're looking for him, but also the story of uh, sort of the troubled past of this this dude as he's trying to get his his uh, his life together and figure out this alien stuff. But then also the story of this you know guy being tortured, trying to escape, but also this guy's relationship. You know the the main character's relationship with his uh, female uh, friend, girlfriend, mm. basically uh, a bunch of stuff sort of going on all at the same time. And then the movie kind of goes off the rails at the end in a way. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Movie that's totally really great. That's really great. Yeah. Um, and what I what I one of the things I really love about it is that I feel like the movie is about very personal themes of loss and suffering and mm. injustice and bullying and and a lot of things you know one of the things that Grady talked about in his intro that's that people are going to check out is how class issues are so prevalent in Korea that in a lot of these films it's not some abstract theory like in America as soon as you start saying like there are people for whom the world works and there are people for whom the world doesn't work you're mm. you're like a, a Marxist you know, extremist. Like, yeah, you're. Yeah, out yeah, here, yeah. Like... Well, it's and it's like theory, right? You have to explain the uh-huh. theory of why that's true. Whereas in this, these films, it's common sense. It's not some highfalutin idea that the world is unjust. Everybody knows it in their fucking bones, and they know for a fact that people who are poor don't get justice, and they don't get rights, and they don't get to have the system work for them. And mm. that's a lot of what this movie is about even though if you read up about the guy who made the movie he was inspired by misery he's like what if i made a version of misery that the character who's doing the torturing was an actual character who like had a backstory or whatever and so that was his motivation his motivation wasn't i'm going to make a movie that's secretly about injustice and you know the history of korea but inevitably it's about that because that's what the fabric of their experience is yeah right? and that's what the perspective of this filmmaker is yeah and so it comes across in a really strong way such that even as you learn more and more that this dude is a fucking psychopath that doesn't make him less sympathetic yeah and- it doesn't make him less even likable yeah, it at all. And in mm-hmm. fact, when the movie, when the inevitable conclusion of the movie, which we're going to just assume everyone has had a chance to watch it now that we told you to watch it, is the end of the world, it's kind of like, well, of course it is. You know, like, our man lost. So, of course, you know, our man, the torturing kidnapper, who, by the way, has tortured some, like, 20-some people and only two of yeah. which turned out to be aliens by his crazy mind. So, like, he's not even... He's mostly just hurting people who hurt him. You still kind of root for him, right? <laughs> yeah. I will say... The, uh, which kind of brings me... This is my one criticism of the movie, I will say. They're the, you know... Our main character, I'm going to bring up the IMDb so I get the names right here. Mm-hmm. Our main character is, uh, his name is Lee Byung-gu, right? Mm-hmm. And then he has uh, uh, a girlfriend who we only know as... Uh, Suni. Suni. And she doesn't get a full name. 
and she doesn't get to be a lot of a character. And while she's very endearing, she mostly exists just to be like his foil. She exists to like help him. She exists to be his conscience that he's not listening to. And then mm. she exists to die to motivate him to have like some final sort of motivation. And while she's played very well, like uh, the act, mm. act, actor uh, Jung Min Huang, who, who plays her, is great. Like I just think she does a great job and she really is amazing in the role. The character is a little light and I, I would hope that a more modern version of this film would allow her to be a more of a full person, you know? Because the mm -hmm. way it comes across is like sometimes she's a bit of a punchline and I don't, yeah. I don't like that for her. I don't like that for her uh, in this role. I don't like that for the character. And I don't like that for the movie because it's in many ways, in a movie that has torture and violence and all this stuff in it, it's an extremely humane film. It's a it's yeah. a it's a really compassionate film. And in fact, and it's the a cruelties film. meted out to her just don't feel deserved. Exactly, it's compassionate or, to every character except for her. She's the only yeah. character who has we have no compassion for. Even the even the jerky boss, we are yeah, shown this. some humanity of and. When he turns out, whether this is real or not, or it doesn't matter, but when the movie turns and he's a fucking alien who destroys the planet, that even has more dignity than she's given. And it's a shame because it's the only flaw to a movie that I think is otherwise fucking perfect. Yeah, I would agree. And it's such a weird flaw, too, because it's like I, I, I can't even base it in any type of like gender dichotomy because the main motivation for the character is his mother. So it's like a weird, like, so then why is she like this strange black sheep of a plot line? And, I think, I, I think know. it's meant, I, I always found that to be confusing. I think it's meant to be, she is, I, I mean, this is not a disrespect to her. I just think this is the, the paradigm. She's meant to be that the fool, you know, the mm. fool is both the punchline and the, the one who comes through in the end and has insight. Mm. Like she's the conscience. She's the one who's like, even if these people are aliens we're, we're being kind of bad to them she's the one mm -hmm. who senses when he needs help like she's the, the fool in a lot of narratives can be this deus ex machina but not only does it make her character less important by having her be that but the mm -hmm. gender dynamics are inescapable that like yeah. she doesn't matter because she's a woman and we're even shown another love interest he had that's motivating his revenge which makes her feel now granted there's there's sequences I, I think the movie is complicated by the end which is some of the most humane moments of the film where we're seeing his life and it's pretty clear from the end montage over the credits that he really did care about her that this idea mm. that she was just a tool of his craziness isn't quite accurate that he did love her to some extent but it's mm. not enough and in fact yeah. it makes the movie seem even more cruel because if he does really love her why not why doesn't she have a larger role in or his at least the larger character, yeah. Yes, in the yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, I agree. But I, I wanted to point that out early on to sort of say that for me is the only criticism of the movie. Like, I yeah, really think yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a perfect film, except for that. And I get that the tonal shifts are difficult for people. But I think if you've watched enough of these, uh, this era Korean of Korean movies. film, yeah. some of these tonal shifts are not going to bother you at all. They're going to make total sense. Yeah, it's totally like when Hardcore started doing the singing, screaming thing with like, uh, with Kaven and like Boy Sure. It was like for a minute, everybody's like, wait, what? That's the same dude. But like, also, if this is where you like cut your teeth or 
came to know that stuff, that's just kind of what it is. So I get it. It's same thing. I, I agree with you, even though I no longer like those singing bands. But I get what you're saying. <laughs> that like if, if you're used to it, it's not going to go down rough. It's going to it's gonna make sense. And yeah. those total shifts have come into other things. We've talked about it on this show. The end of uh, a tr- uh, the Train to Basan. I think a lot yeah. of people are confused that the end turns into this like sentimental love story. But again, the strongest historical tradition in Korean film, at least according to Grady Hendrix, is this mm. melodrama, these very powerful melodramas from the early part of their cinema history. So it's not a surprise that Train to Busan references that and makes a connection to that. And a lot of these movies do. Some of the roughest most cruel films I've seen out of Korea still have a really emotional core, and I yeah. fucking love that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm right there with you. And this definitely is one of those movies that's like fucking rough. Like, he's straight up torturing this dude, and there's these oh, moments yeah. throughout the movie where you're like, yo, man, like, that shit ain't real, right? Like, that's fucked up. And then when it comes to fruition that he is the alien, supposedly, at the end, you're still like, yo, man, that's still crazy but that's what makes the end of this movie so almost fun for me like the scene when they're like we were waiting for you to call and he's like they shaved my hair (laughs) how was i supposed to call you so good oh my god that line alone is worth fighting through all the trauma that leads up to it just because it's so funny oh yeah well and i think what the movie does too is really complicate our relationship to the main dude uh lee byung lee byung because um it, it shows us his flaws and it shows us his failures and it shows us the reasons behind what he's doing and we should still see it as like he's murdered a bunch of people but even mm. when we see the alien then it's like what the movie ends up doing that i don't think we should make light of is it conflates this larger issue the whole planet is fucked like we're all dead now because of these aliens with Mm. the minor tragedy of his life and i think Mm. when you're in a situation like the 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 very intense situation that korea was in for years and years and years it's really easy to write off the suffering of individual people it's Mm. really easy to treat the suffering of individual people and to uh, and to instrumentalize it so like it's good for melodrama but it doesn't mean anything and what this film says is like each heartbreak of this guy's life is not that different than the whole planet exploding and if you think one thing matters and the other thing doesn't then like you're not connecting to the emotional core of this movie i don't think you know and i think that is a very important statement that the film is making and it's very powerful. Mm. And it like when, when that end sequence happens over the credits, I get mm. emotional. I mean, I get emotional yeah. other parts of the movie, but that part is like, wow, this was a real dude who went through some real mm. shit in a way. I mean, it's obviously not real, but you know what I'm saying? Like that the character is not just, Oh, he's funny. Cause he's crazy. It's like, yeah, no, no, there's a lot he's going like a on person here. in there. And like, that's a masterful director that that's wherein you see the true skill that it took to bring this hodgepodge of a movie, if we're being honest with each other, to bring it into such sharp focus. Right. And to bring it into such, like, almost poetic, like, terms by the end of it. It's so good. It's a shame, because this dude hasn't directed a lot of other movies. If you watch this movie because we covered it and then you're like oh this guy's great i want to check out more of his stuff he's only done a few other things and that's a shame i don't know why that is uh Mm. but to me this movie speaks to a talent who should be making a lot more stuff 
this movie is great. High recommend. High recommend. So yeah, I mean, it's if if you're looking for a straight fucked up movie that has no emotions to it, this is not for you. If you're looking for uh, yeah, if that's what you're looking for, you can look towards those guinea pig zero movies that came out around yeah, this 100%. time from Japan, yeah, 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 which yeah, yeah. are not my favorite. I fucking hate those movies. Yeah, I'm not into it either. Um, <laughs> Just and, but but I also think like for people who like they're like oh there's like emotions and stuff it is a whiplash movie you have to be in for the ride you have to be mm. in for the the comedy of it and the pathos of it and the suffering mm. of it and then even some of the badassery of it he keeps having these fantasies of like fighting people who are mean to him and those parts are like super kick-ass and you know they're not yeah. real but they're there and and this 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 is a complicated character if you need a, a character that is not that is straightforward and just yeah. one thing. This, this is not dude, the movie for you. He, you feel bad for him, but he also kind of sucks. Like you feel both. Yeah, he's things. also like instrumental in his own undoing. But I mean, but that's the thing, right? Like there are these like really grating things about these characters in general. Right. But then there's like the scene when he gets strangled and is like dead, and the uh, the the boss dude is like pissed. It's kicking me. He's like, I will, you'll never beat me. And he stomps on his chest and they show an x-ray of the stomp chest restarting his heart. I love that. That scene is so fucking funny. It's it so comes good. at such a dark moment in the movie <laughs> that you can't help but lose your shit. You can't help but be like, yo, and like, you know, jump a little bit. It's so great. It's such a good movie. It's uh, so yeah. I and like I said, this was uh, a bit of my introduction. I think the the whiplash of the craziness of this movie kind of prepared me for some of those other movies that also pushed you know um, my limits. You know, I I, mm. I definitely went from this movie to watching stuff like uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or Old Boy, yeah. and I think it mm. really prepared me that those movies didn't crush me the way they could have you know what i mean yeah so yeah. um yeah i i uh, i think this is a good in uh let's then switch gears and talk about a movie neither one of us knew anything about going in crying fist josh what, yeah. what did you think of crying fist man it's it's a deep movie man it's one of those movies that's like it's an action drama so basically the synopsis of the movie is that there are these two gentleman one is like a trouble middle-aged like boxer ex-boxer he took silver in the asian games as and um the other one's like a young kid who like owes money to all these like bad gangster people and he tried to rob an old dude who had cash and the deed died and then the kid went to jail so the story is that these two characters who are seemingly disparate like the one the old boxer he has a wife who like you know he's on the rocks with and a kid that he loves but like you know he's having a hard time connecting because he can't make like a livable wage for his family kind of thing he goes to the streets and he he charges people to beat him up they're like he says if you pay me like this kind of money you can just punch me and i'll be here and it's like a kind of thing and uh he's trying to figure out a way to make a living and on the other end you have this young kid who like i said robs this old dude and the old dude dies and then he goes to jail and he's in jail and he's angry and he's got this family that loves him but like he's just kind of a lost soul and he's angry and he's young and he's in jail now and he finds boxing through the pro inside the prison that he's in and he he ends up on this path to try and like find some type of like sense of self and a sense of um, 
I don't know if it's redemption, but he's just trying to find like an outlet for all of his like wild ass ways. And um, he's trying to like what ends up happening is is his dad, who cares about him very much, gets killed in like uh, a building construction accident. And then his mom disappears and all he's left with is his brother and his grandma, who's got like Alzheimer's and is like deteriorating in a home. And then you have the older boxer who's like, you know what, like his brother is trying to help him out. But again, they owe a lot of money to creditors and all this other stuff. Well, his brother so has they, a gambling problem, so he keeps robbing yeah. him and gambling and losing all the money. All so- the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you owe me all this money and all this stuff. And like the the gambler debt collector dude is like a bad dude and all this. And um, eventually what ends up happening is that both characters, independent of each other, decide like, yo, if we get into this boxing competition and we win, we'll get the money and we'll like our lives will be better. So what ends up happening is through trial and, and tribulation, each one ends up in the championship ring against each other. And what ensues is a, a knockdown drag out brawl. And um, yeah. So um, what did I think of this movie? I enjoyed it. I really like that main, the actor who plays the old dude, like I said. Um, uh, Choi Min-sik. Choi Min-sik. He played Odesu and Old Boy. He he was in uh, Lady Vengeance. He was he's the guy who gets murdered at the end of Lady Vengeance. Um, he's also in he, I Saw the Devil. Yeah. And, he's in, uh, oh, he's and in, in Lucy. Yeah, oh yeah, he's in Lucy too. I love him so much. So he's like the Takeshi Bayard of like Korean cinema, right? Like he's like the dude that's kind of in everything, and you buy him in every single role he's in. Which so if he's like the Takeshi Beard of Japanese cinema, that would make him kind of like the Charles Bronson of American cinema. <laughs> like he's, he'd be in everything. Like okay, I get it. That's the dude. Um, that's this actor for me. So seeing him in this movie definitely was like really comforting. Um, it was interesting to learn that the guy who played the young boxer, played by Seung Boom Ryu, he played Yu Sang Wang. Um, he is actually the brother of the director, I think. Yeah, and he played the mentally handicapped kid on the beach in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Oh, no shit. I didn't know that either. Um, yeah, it's just funny because like this movie has a lot of those actors, like the debt collector guy and the brother, like those guys. Oh, yeah, are yeah, in. yeah. A lot of these people, the dad is the guy from Okja and the host. Mm. and yeah, yeah, He's yeah, also it's... the detective in... Um, in Save the Green Planet, isn't he? Uh, no, I think that's a different dude. Oh, okay. I don't know. Asians, man. Anyway. Um, Stop, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie... Um, it's funny growing up with movies like Rocky, growing up with movies like Rocky 2, maybe Rocky 3, and I'd include Rocky 4. Like, you know, like as a proud Philadelphian, boxing movies are always going to be part of my DNA. I mean... Let's look at the Creed franchise that features not one, but prominent cinepunks. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. It's there. Um, having this be the first time this movie, it still hits all of those notes. And I have to make a reconciliation with the fact that despite not liking sports with almost every of my being, I am a sucker for sports movies, man. 
I love them shits. Oh, we talked about this on our sports movies episode, and I yeah. said how I don't love sports movies, but I do love boxing movies. I think it's <laughs> worth naming up front that neither one of us don't know shit about boxing. So yeah. it occurred to me while watching the fight, which is, by the way, their fight, long sections of it are un cut so it's like oh my god they're like straight up fighting each other yeah i don't know if that crazy but i don't know if that stuff is accurate like i don't know if you're a boxing head like if randomly uh you know uh friend of the show actual boxer well if a friend of the show Vinny paz is listening to this uh episode he's a real boxing guy so he could watch us and go oh this is very accurate or oh this is bullshit he would fucking know i don't know to me they were fighting each other. Like, I'm watching yeah. it going, this is one of the most realistic fights I've ever watched, but maybe I'm an idiot. I don't know. Uh, as a amateur watcher of boxing movies, but not a watcher of boxing, this is one of the best boxing movies I've ever seen, period. It just is. Yeah. Even even when they're fighting early on, when they don't really, like, this, the kid, the older dude knows how to box, but the younger dude has no idea and he's learning. His early fights are so good, like, choreography-wise, because it's like... Yeah, that's what you would do if you were young and angry and you didn't know how to box. That's what you would do. Yeah. Man, much like another movie called Creed from 2015 that you were in. The young boxer definitely has resonances of, uh, you know. Anyway, um, yeah, it's it's just Liam was in Creed. It's one of those movies that like the, the end sequence is like really long. Did you think that that fight was like really long in a two hour movie to have like half or a whole quarter of the movie be dedicated to the final battle between our two protagonists in this movie? It just seemed like, wow, that's a lot of time. Well, it does something that I've seen in a lot. And I'd I'd love to, I wish, uh, sometimes I'd like to have a conversation with Grady about this as a dude who's like probably watched more than either one of us have of these Korean films. But there seems to be this trend in, in the ones I've seen where Let's have these characters suffer every imaginable indignity for as long as we can, and then at the end turn it around, right? Mm. So like the kid is a loser, he's he's yeah. a he's a fuck up loser, and this is his second chance. His first big chance, he fucks that up and he loses in in a spectacular way, in a way where hours later his grandma is still crying about how bad he lost it's a yeah. it's a it's an emotionally crushing moment or Defeat, the, yeah. the dad uh, or the the older boxer he's a bad dad he's a shitty yeah. husband he's bad to his family and not only does he redeem himself in the ring but then he has finally has enough confidence to like spend a day with his son that isn't about his anger or his shame but it's yeah. about like loving his son and it is a magical moment and Dude, so like the, there's it, a moment at the end when he apologizes yes, to his son in the ring yes. and it just broke me right in half right in half it's it's unbelievable it's unbelievable the 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 reality is and again there might be people who watch this movie that feels like oh this it doesn't really get there but for me this isn't a christmas carol moment you know on uh Mm -hmm. recently on linoleum knife dave white pointed out christmas carol sucks because ebenezer doesn't deserve everyone's forgiveness at the end that he should have to suffer a little bit more and i I think that's Mm -hmm. a fair that's a fair claim even though it, it clearly does it because it's christian propaganda but uh but, you know, the idea is, like, this is an unearned redemption. I don't think this movie does it. I think this movie doesn't suggest an unearned redemption per se. It doesn't even necessarily say that these 
dudes' lives are completely turned around just because they won. But it really, yeah. it really says, what if we had a, what if you had a Rocky, right, where at the end, the big emotional match, you were literally rooting for both sides. And that's what happens yeah. here. No, yeah, 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 I yeah. think anyone watching this movie who's like, well, I think old dude should win or I think young dude should win. You are completely uh, missing the this yeah. entire endeavor. I think. Yeah, this yeah, is there, a match where you are is no, invested. There's in no Ivan Drago. There's no like right, we're doing exactly. this for whatever reason or cause. And but, so when it the way that it ends and the dignity both characters feel is fucking magical it's it's it, yeah. it means so much and you really believe that each of these dudes regardless of what the material success is from this match because the movie does a lot to let you know that this is this kind of boxing this like welterweight big deal yeah. cheer, it's gone it's not a money maker it doesn't mean anything these dudes aren't going to walk away from this they're not fucking mike tyson now they're going to walk mm. away and still have to live their normal lives but the dignity they feel that they're able to end this thing with honor is so humanizing for them and it feels completely yeah. justified and earned it it's it it touched me in a way that i thought was like super powerful even for someone who's already a fan of boxing movies this is a step above most <laughs> boxing movies for me yeah wow i thought it was really weird that it was quiet during the final bout no one gives a fuck i, I love yeah. that it was quiet because it's a reminder that this is not again this is not rocky right you're watching rocky you're rooting for rocky but you also know you're rooting for a guy who like depending on the match but and a lot of times he's going to be successful i mean that's the whole message of rocky too right is that like mm. he almost ruined his life because he was so good at boxing you know like that's yeah, what yeah, happens yeah, to rocky yeah, too yeah. uh this movie's not that this movie you're watching it going the the movie goes out of its way to remind you the only people who fucking care about this are you the viewer and the people and who these knows these dudes. boxers personally yeah you know their mm. families and their friends and the people who bet on it <laughs> they care <laughs> but everyone else doesn't give a fuck this is not some uh, amazing this is not a meaning of the universe like when mm. you watch a rocky movie it really feels like the entire universe is in that ring with them that everything in the world is resting on shitty little sylvester stallone's shoulders you know what i yeah. mean and this movie it's like no no one gives a fuck but you do you know like that <laughs> is that's i think part of the power of it i definitely thought that the end was a little saccharine i'll give you that that's my main I loved complaint. It. I love that. But it. it's funny, though, because then as I thought about it, if you took the saccharin end away, you're left with 1979's The Champ, if you remember that movie, the John sure. Boyd movie. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Ricky Schroeder and all that stuff. Like, if you take, like, the sublime sweetness of redemption away from the end of this movie and you turn it into a, a redemption earned in death, this movie would be that. And that, that movie was a bummer. I don't think I liked that movie very much. This movie, the more that I think about it, the more I really do enjoy that this is a movie about the beginning of a road to redemption. And that's where the movie ends. Right. right? It doesn't because, solve like all said, their problems on screen, no. but you believe but that they can on step forward. Yeah. Yeah. That they're on this direction now that will equate to them somehow transcending whatever, like, poor choices they made that led them to there and i it's, agree it, you know it's funny because like as i think about it more i see the inspiration in it but um i really thought that this movie was really well done i agree i mean again i think it suffers because it's clearly 
at least the version that's on Criterion is very digital video. It's a little flat, mm. I think. Yeah, but that I, was like the rage at the time, though, right? Like, that it was, was like the whole it thing. Was. It totally was. And I get it. But I just think, like, I think looking back on it, I, I could see why someone might have trouble or they might want something a little more visually engaging. But I don't think that matters. Like, to me, it still shines for that. And I think the camera, even if the actual image isn't great, the camera work does tell the story very well. Mm, and that's more yeah. important to me than the fact that the, you know, the color grading and the lighting and just the quality of the image is not always great. And even, you know, Criterion cares a lot about how stuff looks. And there's some fucking pixelated moments here. So it's not yeah, like for sure. the high there are moments where thing. you're like, whoa, yeah, I remember that, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I still think it's uh, it's definitely worth watching, especially if you're someone who wants a redemption story that doesn't feel completely marshmallow. This yeah. is this is not marshmallow. This is real. I, I mean, it, it, it's exaggerated, but it feels more like real life suffering, especially within the context of that society. Mm, there's definitely blood in this movie and not just in the boxing ring. You could tell that like just scenes in like the prison scenes and all that stuff. And like, but that's what makes the sublime ending so sublime, right? Like in the bout where the young bull loses. Oh man. Like walking in, he sees his grandmother and his brother and he doesn't say anything to them. And the coach is like, why didn't you say hi? And he's like, I'll say hi to them after I win. And then he loses, and then uh-huh. the scene the scene ends with him sitting by himself, not talking to anybody, just beat. Whoa! It's so heavy, at the very man. end, at the end of the movie, when he goes to his grandma after he wins the fight against the old dude and gives her a hug and says hi to her, oh my god, what a setup for such an emotional payoff! It's wow, that shit was awesome. I loved that scene. I thought it was amazing. I, I I cannot recommend this movie enough. Is how I feel yeah. about it. I mean, uh, I I wouldn't say it's like, uh, you know, I, I I I'm a little excited about it because we're talking about it. I guess it's it's not like it didn't change my life, but is it a solid four and a half out of five? Easily, easily. Yeah, hundred percent. It's one of the better movies we've gotten the opportunity to cover on this show. So I would say check these out. Also, just go on if you have access to the Criterion Channel. Go on the Criterion Channel. Watch our boy Grady. Watch some of the other things. I, you know, I'm looking forward to watching um, the one that I said that I already forgot the name of the Park Channel <laughs> movie. Yeah, uh, that one. Oh man, I can't believe I already forgot it. Uh, you know, but uh, point is, there's um. There's a lot of things on there we're checking out. If you don't have Criterion, you don't need it to watch these movies. Go out, look for these movies, other of these uh, Korean films. I think it's a if it's an unknown area to you, it's an area worth exploring. Mm, yeah. Go to DVD deals in the, the first floor of the Gallery Mall in 1998 yeah. and find them there, too. Or at the Cherry Hill Mall, too. I used to go to both. <laughs> DVD deals, man. DVD deals was like a gateway drug. This shit was awesome, man. So good. So uh, good. I, I still, I'm literally looking at my copy of Hero right now because <laughs> I eventually got one, but the copy of Hero I got at the DVD deals, it didn't have English titles. I just oh, had to guess which one was the shit. play of the movie. Wow. Yeah. No, that's how it was with my original copy of Shaolin Soccer. I don't know what any of the, the, the items in English. So, I don't know. But well, big up to that shop at 8th and Chestnut. Just saying. I don't remember that dude's name, but it was dope. 
Oh yeah, that's where I first saw the cover for Oroko Sudoji, though, though we didn't um, rent it yet. Uh, I, I rented yeah. it later. That's a rough one. Laser that's penises. One. Okay. Anyways, yep. hey, right. thanks for listening, y'all. We're so glad you checked out uh, episode one twenty three, and we hope you'll listen to all the episodes, not just at this show, but all the shows on the network. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe because that is the currency that helps podcasters like us grow. And check us out on social media. We're Cinepunks on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, check out the Patreon and tell a friend about the show. We're trying to grow here. Uh, and, you know, we've got some new shirt. We got new shirts in the store. We also have more new ones coming soon. So dope. So help yourself to some sweet gear for the holiday season. That's on you. All right. Episode 123, done and done. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Smoke bomb. Bye, y'all. Don't talk, just listen. Under the black sun, there is no hope, only mystery. Wonder and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinephones Podcast Network. sky in search of unidentified aerial phenomena? Do you lose sleep over strange projects funded by the CIA? Ever wonder which orifices ectoplasm comes out of? Come explore the unexplained and unexplainable with us on our podcast, Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe. We'll talk about telepomancy, haunted railroads, sentient umbrella spirits, mind-altering video games, remote viewing, Spongebob conspiracy theories, and only gets weirder from there. Each episode will share three stories about all the weird things they tell you not to believe. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey!